tomorrow, gentlemen. We'll be in Las Vegas. Welcome to Vegas. Las Vegas functions on a 24-hour-a-day schedule. The pools, the casino, big volcano out in front. That's the Eiffel Tower. Bellagio. Riviera. The Mirage. Flamingo. Sahara. The MGM Grand. This isn't the real Caesars Palace, is it? On a camel. They always put the machines that pay off the most right in the front. Good luck. The Strip is just the most amazing stretch of road, I think, probably anywhere in the world. Kicking ass in Vegas. Vegas, baby. Vegas, baby. Welcome to Las Vegas. subjective can be. Most people today will point to the time before the strip was primarily owned by two companies, MGM Resorts and Caesars Entertainment. While the benefits of consolidation are obvious, potentially the best thing about it is the story of how it all happened. To do that, we're going to have to trace back to how these assets exchanged hands before finally ending up in the corporate portfolio there currently apart. To keep the story clean and the timeline defined, we're only going to focus on the majority owners and only their moves in Vegas. We're calling this the Great Consolidation of Las Vegas. When corporations moved into the gaming industry, most of the individual properties had different owners, and few owned more than one. While there were casino acquisitions as far back as the mob days, Howard Hughes is technically the first time a company, or in this case a man, that made his name outside of gaming, Las Vegas, or even the hospitality industry, bought into the market with his purchase of the Desert Inn in 1967. Due to huge reclusivity and armed with billions to spend, the way gaming licenses were awarded had to be changed. Previously, an individual applied for a license and was required to appear before the board in a public hearing. New legislation changed these requirements to not only accommodate Hughes, but to make casino ownership something a corporation could do. It would be logistically impossible to ask all the stockholders of a company to apply for a gaming license. Companies needed to be awarded gaming licenses, not individuals. But Howard was really just one man. His legendary land grab only consolidated the properties he purchased for a time. After his death, the Super Corporation, a company created to handle his vast assets after he sold the Hughes Tool Company in 1972, began to sell off his Nevada assets to various parties. That began in 1977 and lasted through the 1980s. The first corporation to buy into the Las Vegas market was a fast food restaurant chain named Looms. In 1969, they bought Caesar's Palace from Jay Sarner for $58 million. In 1971, Looms owners decided they wanted to focus on being a gaming company, so they sold off their 350 restaurants to the owner of Kentucky Fried Chicken and renamed themselves Caesars World. Now let's set the stage for all the players that would reshape Las Vegas ownership. It can be argued that the Hilton started the great consolidation when they bought the International and the Flamingo from Kurt Kikorian in 1970. Kikorian decided he wanted to build a new resort just off Strip, on Paradise Road. 
However, he had no experience running casinos, so he bought the Flamingo in 1967 to practice while building the International. After encountering financial troubles shortly after the International Open, he decided to sell to Hilton. This was the first time a company that didn't already primarily do business in Las Vegas or the gaming industry made its introduction into the market by purchasing two existing properties in it. Hilton renamed the International after themselves, and the Flamingo became the Hilton Flamingo. In 1988, Hilton closed a portion of Flamingo's parking garage next to Imperial Palace and built a new casino named O'Shea's. After Kerkorian sold the International in 1971, he didn't stay out of the Vegas gaming market long. He returned in 1973 and built the first MGM Grand on the corner of Las Vegas Boulevard in Flamingo Road. Seven years after it opened, the property experienced the deadliest fire in Las Vegas history in 1980. After undergoing extensive renovations that made it the safest hotel in the world, Gregorian couldn't shake the tragedy and wanted to distance himself from it. So he decided to sell the property to Bally's in 1986 for $594 million. Bally's was a company that made their name in other industries, but had a diversified portfolio. Their introduction into gaming started in Atlantic City. The MGM Grand, which would be renamed Bally's, would be their first casino in Las Vegas. While Bally's was continuing to expand their brand, not only in other industries, but in gaming, they announced their plans to build a Paris-themed hotel casino next door to their Las Vegas property for $760 million in 1995. It would open in 1999. In 1937, Bill Hara opened a bingo parlor in Reno and went on to build a Nevada gaming empire. Interestingly enough, when E. Perry Thomas spearheaded the movement to change Nevada gaming regulations to become more corporate friendly, its biggest opponent was Bill Hara. At the time, Bill Hara was potentially the most respected casino owner in the state, if not in history. It was only after his longtime lawyer and close friend convinced him that being a corporation was the only way he could protect his company's legacy in the event of his death did he begin to support the legislation. In 1980, years after his death, Holiday Inn bought Harris. In 1990, Holiday Inn spun off some of its assets, including Harris, into a company called Promise. In 1992, Harris would make its debut in Las Vegas when the Holiday Casino at Holiday Inn was remodeled from its riverboat theme into a Mardi Gras-inspired motif and renamed Harris. In 1995, Promus spun off all its gaming entities into Harris Entertainment. In 1999, Harris Entertainment relocated their corporate office from Memphis, Tennessee to Las Vegas and were looking for a more appropriate space to set up their corporate headquarters. With Bellagio recently opening and Mandalay Bay under construction, Harris needed a foot in the high-end market. Buying Rio would not only give them that, it would be a far better place to call their corporate headquarters than the Harris property on the Strip. So, they bought Rio for $888 million. After selling the first MGM Grand to Bally's, Krikorian again didn't stay out of the Las Vegas market very long. He returned in 1987 and purchased the Sands and the Desert Inn. He would go on to sell the Sands to Sheldon Adelson in 1989 for $110 million. 
that same year. He would buy the Marina Hotel and Casino and the 100-acre Tropicana Country Club next door to it on the corner of Las Vegas Boulevard and Tropicana Avenue. After running the Desert Inn for five years, he sold it to ITT in the early 90s. On the property he acquired on the corner of Las Vegas Boulevard and Tropicana, he built the MGM Grand we know today. That opened in 1993. Okay, now that you know the players, we can explain their role in the great consolidation of Las Vegas. 1996 can be pointed to as the time when the great consolidation began. That's when Hilton announced their purchase of Bally's and the under construction Paris property next door in an all stock deal valued at more than $2 billion. The acquisition made Hilton the largest gaming company in the world. Owners of the Flamingo, O'Shea's, Bally's, Paris, and the Hilton in Las Vegas. It also allowed them to expand into the mid-market without degrading the Hilton name. In 1998, Hilton spun off its casinos into a company named Park Place Entertainment. While MGM Grand was under construction, Kokorian bought the land across the street. In 1994, MGM partnered with Prima Donna Resorts to build New York, New York on that land. Analysts assumed from the moment it was announced that at some point, one company would buy out the other's interest in New York, New York, so they could become sole owners. Instead, MGM decided to buy Prima Donna Resorts and all their assets in 1999. Own the MGM Grand, the acquisitions of the 90s pale in comparison to what happened in the new millennium. We've already told you the stories of Bill Bennett, Steve Wynn, and Kirk Kerkorian in previous 360 Vintage Vegas episodes. But before we go into their consolidation, let's recap. At the end of the 90s, Hilton was now a company called Park Place Entertainment. They owned the Las Vegas Hilton, the Flamingo, O'Shea's, Bally's, and Paris. Circus Circus Enterprises was now called Mandalay Resorts. They owned Excalibur, Luxor, Mandalay Bay, Circus Circus, and half of Monte Carlo. Golden Nugget Companies was now Mirage Resorts. They owned Bellagio, Mirage, Treasure Island, the Golden Nugget on Fremont Street, and the other half of the Monte Carlo. MGM owned the MGM Grand and New York, New York, while Harris owned the Rio and Harris. Now the real fun begins. In 2000, Park Place Entertainment, formerly Hilton, bought Caesars World for $3 billion. The reason why we've not mentioned much about Caesars Palace until this part in the story is because they weren't interested in expanding in the Vegas market. As legalized gambling expanded all over the U.S. and Canada, Caesars moved into eight different markets. Harris was doing the same, also why they only had two properties in Vegas at this point. In fact, most gaming companies were doing the same. Mirage Resort's expansion into Biloxi, Mississippi can be pointed to one of the reasons why they were in the position to be acquired by MGM. But to tell that story properly, we need to take a step back to 1995. Mirage Resorts was arguably the best gaming company in the business, and Steve Wynn was looked at as the king of the gaming industry. In the mid-1990s, while working on the designs for what would become Bellagio, Wynn's advisors convinced him to expand into local markets, specifically Biloxi, Mississippi. Biloxi, located within 600 miles from major cities like Orlando, Memphis, 
New Orleans and Dallas, was a particularly appealing location due to its close proximity to the 43 million people living in those cities. So Wynn purchased 18.2 acres of land in Biloxi for $27 million, more than the entire cost of the first casino built in the state of Mississippi. Despite being legally required to build a casino on the water, Wynn was vehemently opposed to building a casino that accentuated it like the riverboat style commonly used in the new local markets with such regulations. So Wynn invested millions into mooring up the building so it would be unperceivable to guess. In fact, the structure created was so strong, it was the only casino still located on the water after Hurricane Katrina wiped out the industry and inspired regulations to change and allow casinos to be located on land. The original plans were to spend $110 million to build a gold nugget, but by the time those plans were officially announced, the price tag had almost doubled to 200 million. Truth be told, Wynn wasn't nearly as interested in the Biloxi project as he was in the new Vegas project, tentatively named Beau Rivage, so he delegated it. It would be the first and last casino Wynn would build that he wasn't intimately involved in the designing of. While both those projects were going on, Wynn agreed to partner with Gold Strike Resorts, run by former Circus Circus executives, including Glenn Schaefer, to build the Monte Carlo on the vast amounts of land he owned as a result of the Dunes acquisition. While vacationing in Lake Como, Italy, Wynn visited a village called Bellagio, a word that, in Italian, means a place of elegant relaxation. When Wynn returned from vacation, he informed his team that 10 months of development on the French-themed project known as Beau Rivage would be scrapped in favor of a new theme and a new name Bellagio. By mid-1995, the projected cost of Bellagio was $1 billion. While the original idea of recreational water activities was abandoned, water would still be a central theme at Bellagio. Wynn specifically requested Cirque to design a water-themed show for the property and hired a new company called WET, headed by three former Disney designers, to invent new technology for a dancing water fountain attraction. In 1997, while construction of what would become known as the Fountains of Bellagio was already underway, Wynn had another idea to take Bellagio to the next level, art. Art collecting was Steve Wynn's newest hobby. Originally, the idea for Bellagio was just to feature one work of art, a masterpiece known around the world, put on display behind the check-in desk, something that had the potential to draw lines of people just to see it. The initial budget was $10 million. In October of 1997, Wynn's first documented purchase in the name of Mirage Resorts was for $12 million. Less than a month later, he bought another and continued buying, spending as much as $47 million on a single Van Gogh painting in December of 1997. Some speculate that Wynn was obsessed with his new hobby and this idea was just a way Wynn could continue doing it without spending his own money. It isn't clear exactly how many times it happened, but shortly after acquiring art in the company's name, trades between works from Wynn's personal collection and Mirage Resorts began. In addition, similar to Kokorian buying land, then leasing or selling it to MGM Resorts, 
Wynn would also lease his personal works to Bellagio for a fee. His intention to display fine art in a casino slipped out at an art auction and served as a brilliant way to advertise to the affluent visitor he hoped to draw to Bellagio. After letting the paintings lay about in Wynn's office and home, they were eventually displayed in the Mirage Baccarat pit until Bellagio was ready for them. Wynn's collection became so formidable that it rivaled some of the best art galleries in the world. Investors in Mirage Resorts started getting annoyed with Wynn's new habit as Bellagio's cost started closing in on an unprecedented $2 billion. 1.7 was the official reported cost, but that didn't include the art collection, which easily put it over the $2 billion mark. Wynn became so obsessed with buying art, he started selling shares of Mirage Resort stock to fund it. In February of 1998, Wynn sold off 3 million shares for roughly $72 million, diluting his controlling interest from 15.8% to 14.2%. When it was announced a month later that Bellagio's opening date would be pushed back from March of 98 to October, Wall Street became uneasy, and as a result, Mirage Resort's stock prices began to fall. As projections put Bellagio's return on investment at 17%, or the lowest since Wynn started building in Vegas, the once highly anticipated Bellagio started to look like a mistake. Making matters worse, Wynn started selling off personal assets to continue funding his art buying, including another 2 million shares of Mirage stock in August of 98, bringing his interest in the company down to 11%. Wynn appeared either oblivious or simply unsympathetic to investor concerns, fueling speculation that Wynn was becoming unhinged. Stories began to surface that he had been touching his million-dollar paintings with his hands, something that is considered a basic art collector no-no because of the unrepairable damage oil and acids found on the skin can do to a painting. Flippantly, Wynn not only confirmed rumors, he acknowledged these rules and, without logic, somehow implied the rules didn't apply to him. Once Bellagio opened on October 15, 1998, Wynn finally turned his attention to the Biloxi project, now renamed Beau Rivage, only to find out that the price tag had more than tripled to $680 million. Plans for 1,200 plus rooms became 1,700 plus, four restaurants turned into 12, a 31-ship marina stocked with speedboats for high rollers, was built for $10 million without even consorting with Wynn about it. Similar to Bellagio, it even had a large conservatory stocked with seven mating pairs of finches to provide authentic birdsong. To keep Wall Street in the dark, earnings projections were adjusted to levels you couldn't earn in Vegas at that time, let alone Biloxi. The Biloxi team unsuccessfully tried to work with other casino operators in the area to subsidize flights to Biloxi. Eventually, they shouldered the cost themselves and struck a deal with Airtran. To advertise the property, Wynn tapped Elizabeth Taylor to be the voice of the commercials. However, her exaggerated southern accent offended Mississippians. People argued the commercials seemed to insinuate that Mississippi had nothing to offer until Wynn came to town. Beauvage opened March 15, 1999, and at first, everything looked fine. In addition to the new properties, word that Wynn was working on a new resort for Atlantic City had given the stock price a bump. 
The first quarter earnings call promoted the company's success, especially Bellagio, and its $282 million in revenue, believed to be a record at the time, carefully avoiding the fact that the net income of Mirage Resorts had plummeted to $1.5 million, down from $38.1 million the year before, largely due to the cost overruns of Beau Rivage. It was also not disclosed that the first flight to Biloxi from Nashville that Mirage Resorts heavily subsidized to the tune of $5 million in the month of March alone only had one passenger on the 105-seat plane. The affluent clientele they expected to attract didn't show up because they didn't see anything glamorous about spending their free time in Biloxi. It became clear that Wynn & Company completely missed the mark with Beau Rivage and the Mississippi Gambler, who was less interested in luxury offerings and more interested in loose slots and cop meals. They found the luxury spa alienating and the food offerings too posh. In fact, Beau Rivage did more for its competition in Biloxi than it did for Mirage Resorts, as people would come to see the place before going to stay and play at the places that catered to them. To make matters worse, those they could attract to the property found the legendary Southern Pace meant the Beau Rivage staff was the least productive of all Mirage Resorts. When told stockholders if he had any idea the staff was going to be this unproductive, he would have hired more to make up for it. The staff at Beau Rivage didn't take the comments well. By May, Wynn brought in new leadership to run the place, cut costs, and improve service. To increase visitation, they started offering low prices to people in the largest markets still in driving distance, like Florida and Texas. But the low prices didn't attract the high rollers. It just made the property more affordable for the kind of guests that would steal several thousand bathrobes in the first month at the new price point. To offset costs, Mirage Resorts started laying people off in Las Vegas. With the stock price falling to record lows, the idea of selling some of his art so he could take advantage of the situation and increase his interest in Mirage Resorts was posed to win. The idea was met with aggressive disapproval as Wynn saw his art as the reward for all his success. Besides, the situation the company was in was just temporary. Once they had addressed their missteps, it wouldn't be long before the company was back to business and profitability as usual. But Harris made more problems for Mirage Resorts when it opened its new casino in New Orleans at the end of 1999. Instead of following Wynn's model with Beau Rivage of trying to bring something to the South it never had, Harris New Orleans gave them everything they wanted. Unlike Wynn, Harris studied the market, its history, its politics, and made sure their new casino catered to all of it. Wynn's frustration began to show when he admitted to investors, quote, we spent too goddamn much on Beau Rivage. The frankness of his statement wasn't the only thing that surprised investors. What he said seemed to fly in the face of everything Wynn had ever done. He always spent too much on his properties, and they always did more than anyone could have imagined. Making matters worse, he went on to mock those that bought company stock at $20 and in an attempt to cut their losses, recently sold as the price fell by saying, Mirage Resorts was looking for smart investors that could weather a few storms. By July, Mirage Resorts company stock hit an all-time low, falling to 15 and a quarter a share, a 25% drop in one month. The following week, Wynn made the situation worse. 
While talking to investors at Goldman Sachs, a company who, less than a month prior, purchased 16.6 million shares of Mirage Resorts at $25 a share. At this point, Wynn was tired of people questioning how the company was doing. He was more interested in talking about his new project, the $1.35 billion resort planned for Atlantic City, described as a souped-up mirage named Le Jardin. However, investors were more interested in earnings projections for the next 90 days than what Wynn was working on. The situation infuriated Steve so much that he remarked he, quote, was really surprised at the extremely low level of intelligence, stating they were dumber than he thought if they were focusing on short-term earnings. His frustration culminated when he told the audience, fuck the market, they're hysterical. I have better things to do with my time. It's unclear what really happened, but the story goes, Wynn was informed by one of his We hope you've enjoyed this premium content preview. For access to the rest of this episode, as well as all the premium content we offer, go to patreon.com slash 360vegas. A monthly subscription will give you access to the enhanced version of the podcast, often with bonus content, exclusive podcasts like 360 Vintage Vegas, 360 Origins, 360 Vegas Movies, insider information on all things 360 Vegas, 360 Vegas Vacation, and early access to everything. To subscribe, simply go to patreon.com slash 360vegas. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Or you can find a link to Patreon on our blog, 360vegaspodcast.com. Hey.